we live, from my observations, in a very fast-paced world. I mean, it's just a busy age. I mean, everyone is busy, it seems like. And we're all rushing to get our long to-do list accomplished on any given day. And when I look at the, the hallmarks that define the 21st century, I think it's just faster. We want everything to be faster. We want our fast food to be really fast. We want our internet connection to be really fast. We want our computers to be fast. We want everything to be fast. We want red lights to be fast. Amen? If I'm logging on Netflix and I want to watch a HD 720 movie, it better not lag. Not even for two seconds, because then it's going to endure my fury on, oh, I can't believe it's lagging. I mean, it's just amazing how when everything instant and so fast, and if I'm booting up my, my computer and it takes more than 45 seconds to boot up, I'm, I'm getting frustrated on what's wrong with this machine. It's not, it's not booting up fast enough. And I doubt you're that different. We want everything to be fast. And it seems like our impatience really is fueled by technology. But, but this impatience of ours, yes, it can affect all our relationships, but sometimes we don't realize that impatience can also sabotage our souls. It can really affect us spiritually. Oftentimes we're too impatient to just sit still. And to just be quiet before our God. We're too much in a rush and we're too impatient for solitude. Solitude, that's foreign in our world. Like, what does solitude mean anymore? Like, that's this, this weird, archaic, who does that? Believers ought to. We need to have time in the presence of our God where we're focused upon who he is through the word and through focused thinking, through meditation and through prayer. We, we are desperate for him. And when we don't, when we don't have this, this time before our God to have a restored soul, what, what happens to us is our souls then get restless and anxious. And, and we find ourselves kind of being pulled and drawn towards evil habits that just continue the cycle and we, we drift further away from the God that we love. And we see little transformation in our lives. Jesus said it in Matthew chapter 7, you will recognize them by their fruits. Every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. It's talking about your character, who you are. And then Jesus also says in John 15, Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And so if we want to bear good fruit for Jesus, and if and if you love him, and if he is your savior and your master, then you do want to bear good fruit for him. You do. That's why you're here on a Friday. 
this, because this is your heart's desire. See, if you want your actions to consistently display the glory of God, remember that your actions simply demonstrate who you are. And so what we do, what we say, how we live, what we think about, what we desire, who we are, is the key. So our actions simply flow from who we are. So our actions demonstrate who we are. So if you want to truly experience God's healing and freedom and transformation that we sing about so powerfully, what we need most is to abide in Jesus. Continue in Him. Pursue Him daily and to enjoy His presence. I love John 12, 21. It describes this group of, of Greeks that did not know Jesus, but they wanted to, and they were desperate to meet Jesus. And so they find Philip, who was probably also Greek from his name. And so they find someone that they can relate to. Hey, Philip, they say, sir. And what they say is powerful. These Greeks say, sir, we wish to see Jesus. That's profound. That's the key. For you to live the life that you want, but even beyond that, to live the life that you know God wants for you is from your heart deep inside to say, I wish to see Jesus. If you want a life that is marked by peace and increased holiness and obedience and, and have a life that is service to the king where you are truly fulfilled and you're on mission for Jesus with, with lasting joy. This has to be our heart's cry. I wish to see Jesus. Hebrews 3.1 commands, consider Jesus. Very simple. But we're, we're told to consider Jesus. And so action without meditation so activity, even for Jesus, without abiding and considering him, will fail. And so if we think that the Christian life is just activity, activity, staying busy, if, if that's what we think it is, we are doomed for burnout and for a life that is not glorifying to God. We must stop and to consider Jesus, and I can tell you this out of personal experience, as much as the Word is clearly teaching this, but I've lived this. I'm someone who was more wired to action before stopping to, to consider Jesus, and so this has been my journey of faith, and like you, I have ups and downs in great seasons and low seasons, and we're all on this journey together. Indeed, being sanctified is a process, and we need each other to encourage us to continue on this process. But the point still remains that pure action without meditation will fail. We must rest our souls in Jesus and be in awe of Him and to just have this desire to see Him. And so as I've been 
thinking and, and meditating on this profound truth and how God has been revealing even more profoundly how critical this is for us as we follow Him, His Spirit kind of led me to put together a preaching series that I'm calling, Who is Jesus? It's not a very creative title, but I'm trying to get to who Jesus is so that we can consider Him and we can desire to see Him more. This will be a seven-week series that will talk about the person and the work of Jesus. And so theologians call this Christology. And so Christology is just the study of Jesus. That's what that word means. And so this will be a Christological series where we're going to be considering who Jesus is from his word. And so my heart's desire, the aim is to reveal Jesus, so that you can see more clearly who he is, and then that will change your life. You were made to know Jesus and then to make him known. And so who is Jesus? Well, it makes sense if we're going to ask that question in this series that we begin at the beginning. That's where we should start, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, where the story of creation, of God's redemption, of human history begins. And so if you look at Genesis 1 and 2, it describes God as the creator. He made everything that exists all-powerful, all-wise, all-knowing, and he made Adam and Eve, the first humans, and he put them in this beautiful garden called Eden. Now, this world had no sin. Adam and Eve had each other. They enjoyed each other. And maybe you're married for a long time and you think, I remember what that was like many years ago. But that's how it should be. As a married couple, we should be enjoying each other with a holy and a pure love. And you had that with Adam and Eve, enjoying each other. But they weren't just frolicking, just kind of hanging out, enjoying each other exclusively. They were enjoying each other while they were working. They had a, a task to do. And so they were partners. They were partners in life and in ministry. And so you had Adam and Eve enjoying each other as they fulfilled an a eternal, soul-satisfying task. So as these two image bearers of God, Adam and Eve, were, were created and, and tasked to reflect God's glory as they were caring for this garden. But if you read the text, it was far bigger than just the garden. They had a global mission. God told them, fill the earth and subdue it. Not fill the garden. Fill the earth and subdue it. Fill the earth and have dominion over it. So they were called to expand the borders of the garden to cover the whole planet. So Adam and Eve were called to know God, to enjoy him, and then to make him known across the planet. And they had the presence of God right there to fill them so that they could accomplish his God-given task. This is glorious. This is paradise. That's what you see in Genesis 1 and 2. But at the same time, don't misunderstand. Adam and Eve 
Yes, we're holy and in the states of integrity, but they were still human, just like you and me. They were created from the very beginning to be dependent on God. So these were not gods, these were humans, and they were to depend on God. So they were commissioned to trust and to really treasure God. And by, by trusting him and by treasuring him, then it would lead to obeying him. So let's read in Genesis 2. Pick up the story there. Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So there it is. He, he had a job to do. Verse 16, And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so God was telling Adam, and then Adam would convey the message to Eve, God was saying to them, Show that you treasure me. Show that you love me. Show that you trust me and that you will obey me as a generous God who made you, who owns you, but a God who loves you and a God who has given you every good gift that you enjoy, including myself. I am your father. I am good to you. You can trust me and obey me. So this is what God was communicating to Adam and Eve. So from the very beginning of humanity, they were called to the life of faith. No different from you and me. They were called to trust God. This is key to understanding how the story unfolds. As humans, we have always been and always will be dependent upon the grace of of God, And that was true in the Garden of Eden even before there was sin. God was gracious to them. But we know what happens. Genesis chapter 3 describes the saddest day in human history. It's, it's incredibly heartbreaking if you read what happens in Genesis chapter 3. So, humanity is holy. The garden and earth is good and pure and holy, but there was an evil that already existed, an evil that was beyond the borders of this world. And this evil who took the form of a serpent comes into God's good and holy creation. Now remember, Adam was given authority over all the animals, so Adam had authority over the serpent, but he didn't use his authority that he had over the serpent. He was called to trust God and, and to protect the garden. He failed to trust God, and he failed to protect the garden. Satan tempted Adam and Eve, and they believed the serpent instead of God. They did not trust God. They rebelled against him. So we know the old song, many of us do, trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Now, I would sing it, but I don't, I don't sing, so, so I'll just quote it to you. You see, but the serpent came in and said, no, there is another way to be happy. It's to be happy without God. So the serpent says, no, 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 that's not true. You can be 
happy if you can just be free from the authority of God, free of him. Now, if you read Genesis 3, does this sound like happiness to you? Verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So that, that should be a good thing. God is there. There's his presence. They should be running to enjoy their God. But they heard him, and it says, And the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The saddest day in human history. What you see here is Adam failed to accomplish his duty as the Lord over creation, under God's authority, of course, but the king over creation. He believed the serpent. And then what you see here that just, man, it makes me so sad. Because you have Adam who was called to love his bride, to cherish her, to protect her, to honor Eve. Instead, he's blaming her for his foolishness and blaming his bride for his problems, his issues, and his sin. And we see the same today. We see the same pattern in our marriages today. Husbands that instead of treasuring their wives, blame them and blame God for giving them their woman. And so you see here the beginning of conflict, of brokenness. This is not the happiness that Satan promised. This is what sin does. It destroys. It divides. And the whole world was plunged into darkness and into sin. And all humanity is now fearful of God. And so we run and we hide and we don't trust God. And we prefer our idols over the love and the very presence of God. And so we don't want to love God or depend on him. We want control. So in response to human rebellion, God cursed the world, and he drove Adam and Eve out of the garden and out of his presence. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 24, to complete that chapter, it records God's judgment. And so what we see here is we as humans deserve only one thing from God, and that is his judgment. And like our original father and mother, Adam and Eve, we too have rebelled against our God who loves us. And so we are sinners by both nature and by choice. But in the middle of God's judgment, what we see here in Genesis 3 is powerful. There is a promise of mercy in the middle of judgment, and we have hope. Let me read to you verse 15. 
I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That is actually a very important verse in the whole Bible. It's very critical and foundational verse. This verse has been for a long time known as the Proto-Evangelium. If you're like, what? It's on the screen, the next screen here. So that's what the word is, is the proto-evangelium. Now, proto means first. So if you have a prototype, it means the first of its kind. And so proto just means first. That's what the word means. And so evangelium is Greek word for evangel is gospel. And so that's why we're an evangelical church. We are a gospel-focused, gospel-centered, gospel-preaching church. So the evangel is the gospel. That's what the word means. And means good news that Jesus came to save us from our sin. So we're evangelical. So proto-evangelium just means first gospel. That's what it means. And so what you're seeing here in Genesis 3 is the first gospel. It's the first proclamation that there is good news. In the middle of brokenness and sin and conflict and judgment, there's a promise of hope. There's a promise of good news. This is the first prophecy in the Bible that one day the Messiah will come. This is the first promise that God has a plan that the Messiah would come to save us, to heal our brokenness, to deliver us from our darkness, to end our slavery to our idolatrous sin, and to bring us near and to restore what was lost. So what was lost in the garden, this paradise that was lost, God immediately promises that he will restore it. And see, so you see three statements in Genesis 3.15. Next slide. What you see in the first phrase is, I will put enmity between you and the woman. So that's what you see in the first part of this verse. And so God says that there's going to be conflict between the serpent and the woman. But then the second phrase says, and between your offspring and her offspring. Now, the word offspring in the original, the word is seed. So that's what that word is. And so so between your seed and her seed, your offspring, your descendant. So God is saying in that second phrase there that this conflict is going to continue beyond the lifetime of Eve. And so this conflict is not between just Eve and the serpent. That the seed of the woman is going to continue to have conflict. So all of humanity is going to have conflict with the serpent. But then the last phrase brings it into more clear focus, and it says he, and so now we see that this seed is singular. It's one. He, this one individual born of a woman, he shall bruise your head. He will crush the head of the serpent, and you, the serpent, shall bruise his heel. So God says that this conflict will one day end with a single person, the Messiah, who will one day come, born of the woman, and he's going to suffer. He'll have his 
heal bruise. So it's not going to feel good. It's going to be painful, and he's going to suffer, but he will not die, whereas the serpent will receive a fatal blow and have his head crushed by the one-day coming Messiah. And so this is the main idea. All of that context to bring you to this is the point. Jesus is the promised seed of the woman. So who is Jesus? Jesus is the promised seed of the woman. Jesus is the eternal God. He is the promised offspring seed who came into this world as a human, fully God and yet fully human, born of a woman to accomplish the redemptive purposes of our God. And so what does this mean? You think, okay, you're throwing out big words and all of this theological teaching, but what does this mean for me today? I have four kids, and two of them are three years old, and life is fast and busy, and I'm not sure, maybe you're, you're thinking, well, how does this impact my life today? This changes everything in your life today. The implications and the application is profound. And I have three of them I want to give you here, three truths. And if we will, by God's grace, allow these to sink in deep, these are life-changing truths. Number one, as the seed of the woman, number one, Jesus crushed the enemy. He has crushed the enemy. This is the story of the whole Bible. Genesis 3.15 is a preview of the whole Bible. It's like a trailer that lets you see what's going to happen in, in the movie. This is a trailer that lets you see a preview of the whole story of the Bible, of the battle between these two seeds. And so you have in the very next chapter, Cain is born. Cain is the seed of the serpent, and he kills Abel, who had faith in God and was seed of the woman. You have, in the very next book, in Exodus, you have Egypt, who is enslaving the people of God, and Egypt that wants to throw all the babies into the Nile and wants to eradicate Israel. The serpent wants to make sure that there will be no Messiah that there will be no man to crush the head of the serpent. And so you see that already in Exodus, and you keep going, you get to the anointed one, David, who defeats Goliath. And you have Assyria, Babylon, Persia, one after the other, that all want to enslave and destroy Israel. Read Esther. There's a plan to kill all of the Jews. There be no Messiah, but God at every single turn, he's got this. He never lets the serpent win, and he tries over and over to destroy the people of God and prevent this from coming true, and yet God is always a step ahead of the serpent, and he never lets him win. Never. And if you read the story, it always seems like, oh, it doesn't look good for God's people. It doesn't look good. It looks bleak and dark. And yet every turn, God is there, fulfilling his promise. You have it with baby Jesus. You have Herod that sends his army to kill the infant Jesus. 
If Jesus dies as an infant and he doesn't die on the cross, then there's no redemption. But God sends a dream to Moses, to, to Joseph rather, and they leave and they go to Egypt. So Jesus doesn't die. He thwarts the demonic plan of King Herod. You have it later when Jesus is an adult. Over and over, the, the religious rulers try to stone Jesus before he dies on the cross. And every time Jesus gets away, he slips through their fingers over and over. So what you see in the whole Bible, this whole story, is Satan trying to defeat Jesus. Who is Jesus? He's the promised seed of the woman who has crushed the head of the serpent. He's defeated the enemy. 1 John 3, 8 says, the reason the Son of God appeared, so John is telling us, the reason Jesus came, he says, was to destroy the works of the devil. This is why he came. He came to undo what Satan did in the garden, to reclaim what was lost in the garden. And so humans... The truth is, like it or not, that we are conceived and then we are born with a sinful nature. All of us is totally depraved. Our inclination is to sin. And I know this because I said a second ago, I have twin two-year-olds. They just turned three this week. I can tell you that their inclination is for what's best for them. They're human. They're broken just like I am and just like you are. And so we have to teach our children to obey, teach them to be kind, teach them how God loves them, because left to ourselves, we will not believe those truths. We are depraved. We need a Savior. And so what you see happening in this storyline is that we're all inclined to rebellion and so we are either spiritual children of the serpent, seed of the serpent, or we are spiritual descendants of the Messiah and are related to spiritually God the Father through Jesus. There's only two options. Either God is your father or Satan is your father, spiritually speaking. You see that in 1 John as well. I, I just alluded to verse 8, but let's read that. 1 John 3, verses 8 through 10. Again, 1 John 3, 8 through 10 makes this very clear for us to see. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed, sound familiar? God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. But this, it is evident who are children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So when we're talking about someone trusting in Jesus, it's not like, oh, I used to be Muslim, and 
I tried Buddhism. I didn't really like the whole you're going to die and nirvana means end of, you know, no, no consciousness. And so I, I thought about maybe some Hinduism, but all those gods are kind of ugly and scary. And so I thought, well, I'm going to go ahead and try out Christianity. It's, I think it's a better option, and I like the teachings of, of Jesus who started this religion, and so I'm going to go ahead and go with, I'm going to roll with Christianity. <laughs> it's not what this is. This is not just a, a religious option that we just choose to adopt. What you're seeing in 1 John 3 is following Christ is a radical transformation. It's a new birth. It's having a new heart where the seed jesus abides in you he's living in you we're no longer children of satan now we're children of god with a whole new heart and life and desires and we live different that's what he's teaching here we live transformed lives with new desires we read earlier from revelation chapter 12 in the worship gathering it's a a powerful text that describes this battle between the people of God, between the angels and this great red dragon, the ancient serpent who's been devouring the people of God. But he is thrown down. His time is short. His, his days are numbered. He's already been defeated. His end is assured. And if you go a few chapters later, to chapter 20 of Revelation, you see his end where he is cast into the lake of fire. The head of the serpent will be crushed. Where the first Adam failed, Jesus' second Adam succeeded. You see, the first Adam faced the serpent in perfect conditions, in the garden, with no problems, and he faced the tree before him, and he chose to rebel against God. The second Adam, Jesus, came. He faced a serpent in the wilderness after 40 days of not eating or drinking. In weakness, he faced a serpent and did not give in to temptation. And then the second Adam faced the tree before him, and he was nailed to it. And he trusted God, and he did not disobey the Father. And so Jesus was victorious where the first Adam failed. He is our Lord, and through his death and then resurrection, he has proved that he is victorious. He endured our guilt and our shame, and he resurrected powerfully, conquering sin and death and Satan. So what does this mean for you? Implication. So here on this screen. So here's just one implication that he has defeated the enemy is that we can live victoriously. You can live victoriously. You don't have to live defeated, enslaved to your sin. If you're a believer, you have been freed of the power of sin. This power of sin has been broken and the penalty has been paid for. And so the more that we draw near to Jesus and see him, experience his presence that makes us whole, then the presence of sin becomes less in our lives. We don't have to live defeated lives. We can live in victory. Number two, I say to the woman, Jesus has uncovered the lie of the enemy. 
He has uncovered the lie. You see, Satan lied to Adam and Eve, and he continues to lie to you and me today, for he is the deceiver. And so what is the lie that he said to them that we believe all the time as well? Here's a lie. Satan said, God does not love you. God doesn't love you. God is keeping something good from you. And they believed the lie. They believed it. That God was keeping something good from them. And he didn't love them, so they ate of that forbidden tree. They didn't believe God. But we can be just as guilty, especially when life is hard. So let's just be honest. When your marriage is disappointing, or maybe when you can't find the husband or wife, and so you're, you're bummed that you want to be married, but you're not. Or maybe your job is really uncertain. Or you're facing serious financial struggles. Or maybe raising children has just been exhausting to you. Maybe a close friend betrays you. So when you love dearly, gets very sick. Or even worse, dies. When we face the hardest realities in our lives, in those moments we can struggle and we can be tempted to believe the lie that God does not love you, the lie that he is keeping something good from you. But you see, Jesus uncovered the lie because on the cross, Jesus exposed the lie. The cross proves that God loves you. The cross proves that he's keeping nothing good from you. The cross proves that he is sovereign, in control, all-wise, all-powerful, and he is good towards you. And whatever has happened in your life that maybe you wish had not happened, you have to rest and truly believe that God is allowing that for your own good and for his glory. Even if you cannot fully understand, and we may not understand on this side of heaven, but we rest in him. We trust him. Walk in confidence. So what's the implication here? The implication is that we can live without fear because God's perfect love casts out fear. We don't have to live lives of anxiety and fearful because we know that God loves us. We have that assurance. Number three, as you wrap up, the seed of the woman, Jesus is restoring the garden. He is restoring the garden. You see, Jesus is the ultimate gardener. He is. The reason that he was resurrected at a garden and the reason that you see in Revelation 22 at the very end of, of the story, it describes the new heaven as a garden. The new heaven and the new earth has now become the global garden of Eden. And the tree of life is right there. And the fruit of the tree of life is healing for all the nations that will be there with him forever. Where Adam failed Jesus was victorious. And as believers right now, in this moment, we right now have a taste of Eden. We have God's presence. His spirit is abiding in us. And so we have just a foretaste. It's so veiled and it's, 
and it's not the full experience that we're going to have one day in heaven, but we have it right now. We have his presence. Jesus is reclaiming what was lost, and we are the first fruits of that. And so earlier when we were singing, it, it was just overwhelming. Just so thankful for our worship ministry team. And I, I was struck with, man, I wish we had more people in this room so that more people could experience the joy of praising Jesus for he is worthy. I want more people to experience the joy of God's salvation. So what is the implication that Jesus is restoring the garden? He is making all things new. The implication, we are agents of restoration. You and I, we are the means, we're the agents that God uses to restore. Yes, God is restoring, but he uses his people. We are the messengers. He is using you and me to spread hope and restoration for others so that they too can experience the joy of knowing him. That's why we're here. That's why we're here as a church in Abu Dhabi, this, this oasis in this dry place. We're here so that we can be encouraged and then have more people come in and experience the joy of knowing God, of knowing Jesus as the victorious king who came and defeated the enemy for us. So it begins with how you're living every day following Jesus but then you need community, other believers to encourage you. And then we need to be influencing people who are far from him. We have a city to reach. We need to invite them and be on mission sharing the good news with them. So who is Jesus? As we begin this series and we close today. Jesus is the victorious seed of the woman who has defeated the enemy. We now have hope. May we be the ones that spread it and reflect it. Let's pray. Lord, we are humbled, grateful, just truly in awe of how when we would rebel against you and bring corruption into your good world that you would, as a holy God, issue the judgment that is necessary and then yet immediately promise mercy and hope and freedom. And then you would send Jesus and he accomplished it. And we just praise you, our God and our Savior. Make us a church that truly reflects on who you are, is focused upon you and is active in making you known here in the lost and dark city. And we want it for your glory in the name of our love, Jesus. Amen.